And how great was that worship time, everyone? So can we just thank Lauren and David for singing and leading us in worship? It's beautiful. I know for me it just it touches me before I come teach God's word to just enter into a time of worship and just to go before the Lord. So I'm so thankful for that and for Eddie and Melissa leading us um, every month. And so just a wonderful thing. And I was thinking those lyrics we sang in, in the song before last that we've seen you move, you've moved the mountains, you made a way where there was no way. And I want to see that again. I want to see God move mountains in my life. I want to see God move mountains in your life. I want to see God make a way where there's no way. Can I get an amen? Does anyone want to see God do that? And not only do I want to see it in your lives as individuals, not only do I want to see it in my life, but I think sometimes we sell the gospel and its power short when we reduce its meaning and significance just to our personal lives. That the kind of stuff we're talking about in Ephesians and that we're going to look at this morning is world-changing stuff. I mean, it really is. It's relevant and it's powerful and it can change the world. And we know that it can because it already has. We're reading a book, or New Ephesians in particular, that's 2,000 years old. And this was world-changing stuff. And we have it today, and I think sometimes we forget just how powerful it is. It's a sad statement when we, we stop coming to church because we just we don't believe in the power of the gospel anymore. We don't believe in the power of the Bible. We don't believe in the power of the church. Many people are questioning the, the nature of the church and, and the value of the church. Does it have any relevance for today? But I believe that it's as relevant as ever if we can uncover what it is God is wanting to do and if we are willing to partner with God in what he is doing in the world to set things right this morning we're going to continue our study of Ephesians in chapter 2 verses 11 through 22 and last week was such an important text and and for me such an important message um, because of all the things we could talk about and there there's many things we can talk about related to Christianity and the Christian life. But we said last week that in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you get the heart of the gospel. You get the heartbeat of the gospel. You don't get just things related to it. It is the heartbeat. And if you take the truth of Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 out, even if you keep all the rules and you do, you do your outward motions, you have a dead religion. You actually don't have Christianity anymore, regardless of what anyone says. So, what we looked at last week was the heartbeat of the gospel. And we, in, a, in a sentence, Paul says it in Ephesians 2.8, and that is, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's the heart of the gospel. That salvation, sanctification, mission, Anything else the rest of your life is solely grace. It's God's grace. It's God's gift. It's God meeting the essential human problem of sin because that is the ultimate problem in our world. And we know that when we turn on the TV, we see all kinds of problems. In politics, they're trying to deal with all kinds of problems. In our personal lives, we're dealing with all kinds of problems, but sometimes we forget 
Or maybe we don't believe that the root of the problem is sin. And part of the reason maybe we don't want to believe that is because we want to believe there's something we can do about it. And we can maybe do something about some of these things on the surface, although many of these things seem to persist and they never change no matter what we do. But the one thing we literally can do nothing about is the problem of sin. That is something that only God can do. And when God does that, He changes us. He gives us a new heart and a new nature. And now we're able to face all those problems in the world with a new nature empowered by the Spirit. And so this is where Paul picks up in Ephesians 2, 11-22. But let me kind of tie in our, our main point this morning, our main topic um, with a story from history, and it's very powerful and very, very relevant, very recent. You probably all know that almost within days of the ending of World War II, another war began. It wasn't the same exact kind of war as World War II or World War I. Not nearly as many gunshots, no nuclear bombs were set off. It was a war of attrition a war of culture, a war of ideology full of threats, hatred, and fear. We know it as the Cold War. And the Cold War lasted for about 28 years. And this Cold War was perhaps best represented by a symbol that we all recognize in history, and that is the Berlin Wall. If you remember, after World War II, the East and West, that is the, the Russians and, and the Allies were coming together, and they realized they may have worked together because they had a common enemy, namely Nazi Germany. But then, very quickly after Nazi Germany is defeated, they realize, okay, well, we're actually not friends. We were simply enemies that happened to have a common enemy, and we felt the common enemy was greater than the enemy of each other, so we're willing to fight. But with that enemy out of the way, suddenly it became very real that there was very serious hostility. And there were many, many times in which a World War III was almost initiated. And this wall was erected in Berlin. As you know, Berlin was divided up between the East and the West. And to keep people from moving from the communist side, the East side, into the West side, they built this wall. At first it was barbed wire. And then it became concrete, several feet thick, 12 feet tall. Then it became manned by guard towers who were authorized to kill on sight, to shoot. 3,000 attack dogs were used up and down, and they had a strip of sand so they could see uh, people would have to run across this before they got to the wall, and they could see footprints, and they would have guards walking back and forth. And so this wall became a symbol. It was more than just a wall, a physical barrier it became symbolic of something else, namely hostility. So this morning, as we look at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, we're going to see that the Apostle Paul is going to talk about walls and barriers too. And he's going to talk about how the Gospel of Jesus Christ and the Gospel of Jesus Christ alone has the power to tear down the real walls in our world. So if you have your Bibles, please look with me now at Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. We'll have the passage up on the screen. Please follow along with me now as we read God's Word. This is God's Word. 
Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And He came and preached peace to you who were afar off and to those who were near. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning because we believe that you are the solution to the problems of the world. We believe that the human condition is so bad that reform is not good enough. Behavior modification is not good enough. Putting on an outward mask to appease people who maybe can't see past the mask is not enough. Tearing down physical barriers, as good as that might be, is not enough. We recognize the problem is so deep, it is within every human heart. And those walls, only Jesus... And His Gospel, through the Spirit, is able to break those down. And I believe that this has real-world implications. That if we actually experience the Gospel, it really will make a difference in our world today. It has the power to change our church. It has the power to change our cities. It has the power to change the United States of America. It has the power to change the world as we know it. And so, Lord, we just pray that this power that's inherent in Your Gospel would be implanted in each of us. And we pray that the walls in our hearts that need to come down would come down. We ask for understanding minds. We ask for receptive hearts. And we pray for your anointing now on our hearing in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, so kind of our main theme is this idea of tearing down walls. That's what Paul's talking about here. So I have to issue a disclaimer. Um, so I'm preparing this message. I'm looking at this text. I'm thinking of all the things that are there. And, you know, how many of you watch the news 
weekly? Raise your hand. How many of you watch the news weekly? Okay, hands down. How many of you watch the news daily? Raise your hands. Okay, so I mean, I realize even though obviously Paul's not thinking about America in the 21st century, part of a preacher's task is not just to know the Bible, but to know where the audience is going to be, to be able to connect what's here to, to you, and also to avoid confusion. Because one of the things I learned uh, very early on, at least in principle, I'm still working on it, but um, it's the idea that I, I thought when you got up to speak, all you had to do was say what you mean. And I found out real quick that's not good enough. Because then I'd have people coming up to me and go, you know, I really disagreed when you said this. And I was like, I didn't say that. And they're like, oh no, you, you did when you said it. Like, and, and I realized part of the task of a public speaker or a preacher is not just to say what you mean. It's to say what you mean in such a way that you cannot be confused as saying anything else. And that's actually really hard. Um, so I do labor to do that. If, 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 if in any way uh, there's a question or confusion, again, um, that's what uh, community groups are for. Uh, you can talk to me afterwards. I, I'm always open to questions, so uh, I encourage you. But um, one of the things that came to mind, of course, is the uh, American political situation with the wall or proposed wall on the southern border, right? We're talking about walls. And so what I want to say is what I'm teaching today directly has nothing to do with that. Okay, so I'm sorry. I mean, maybe you're excited. He's, oh, we're going to get the Christian position on, you know, the American dilemma on the border. You know, it's like, no, you're not. Okay, and if that's what you're thinking, and if you're hearing me say that, you will misunderstand what I'm saying, and more importantly, you will misunderstand what Paul is saying. Now, having said that, there are indirect implications and applications. And some of those things might be obvious. Most, I would say, are things that would need to be worked out biblically, systematically, in community, in prayer. So I'm just putting that out there. We're talking about walls and breaking down walls, not talking about the American political situation. So please don't try to read that into what I'm saying, okay? Because I can already see as I was going through my points, um, I'm going to say things that, that probably could fuel either side. Of, of we should have a wall, we shouldn't have a wall. There's things I'm saying, oh yeah, yeah, that'll make sense. Yeah, we should have one. Then I'll say things, we're always saying we're totally against, you know. You, you could probably pick up on both. So just try to put that off for now. Um, so again, kind of the point with the Berlin Wall is, so you, you had a literal historical physical barrier, right? I was there. Okay, now that is what it is, but it's more, it was more than a wall. It was symbolic right? I mean, how many of you knew of the Berlin Wall? Raise your hand. You've heard of it. But how many of you actually went and saw it? One, two, three, four. That's awesome. So four of you actually saw it, right? And, and for some of you, if you're younger, you might not even know about that. That's, that's possible that some are not learning these things in history, which is sad. I hear they're cutting back on history programs uh, in public schools, which I, I think is extremely unfortunate. Without history, we do not know where we are, and we'll have a real bad idea about where we're going if we don't have history. We need to know trajectory. Are we getting better? Are we getting worse? How do I know if we don't have history? So history is very important. But what you probably know is that wall was more than a physical barrier. It was a symbol of something. It became a very powerful symbol. And that's kind of the idea that I'm talking about because 
Paul's going to talk about tearing down walls. And I want to argue this morning, this is not a side thing that Christians can do for extra credit. I'm going to argue that this is essential to the Christian message of the Gospel. Tearing down walls, and I'll unpack what that is, tearing down walls is a part of our call in the world. It's a part of the Gospel call. Now, I remember, you know, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is something I, I had memorized since I was a kid. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves. Gift to God's not of work, lest anyone should boast, right? And then we go, oh, well, you forgot verse 10, which is for God's created, you, you know, you are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works before the foundation of the earth, that you should walk in them. Okay, well, that's great. There's a call. And guess what those good works are created before the foundation of the world? It's not just whatever you like to do in, in some random ministry. It's verses 11 through 22. The good works you are called to do, created before the foundation of the world, is to be, down, is to be people who through the Gospel break down walls. Like, there's a connection <laughs> between verse 10 and 11. I know that's, you know, like astounding insight on my part. Uh, but for some reason, and I think... One of the reasons is in your, in your Bible, most Bibles now have chapter divisions and section divisions, and they'll have headings. And one of the things that happens is you can get a chapter number inserted or a paragraph break, and then they'll put you know, a new heading like it's some new thought, but it's not a new thought. Verse 10 and 11 flow directly together. In the Bible in front of me, they do just that. They, they break 10 and 11 apart. No, if you receive the Gospel... If you're saved, if you know Jesus, you, you admit you're a sinner, only God can save you, Jesus is your Savior, and you believe on that, you're now commissioned in the world to do the work of God. Well, what's the work of God? Well, right here, after that very statement, Paul goes into this discourse about breaking down walls. So you need to know right now, up front, this is not side stuff, extra credit for Christians who are bored or, or just need the work. No, this is a part of who you must be and who you are if you are a Christian. So what is it exactly? I want to walk through these verses and I want to use three points to do so. Number one, point one. We are socially disadvantaged without Christ. Look at verses 11 through 12. He says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Um, this is very interesting. So verses 1, and 10, 1 through 10 and 11 through 22 actually sort of parallel each other. In the beginning of chapter 2, Paul talked about how, and you are dead in your trespasses and sins. So he's talking to the Ephesians. It's a church. These are Christians. And he's reminding them of their past, specifically relating directly to God. As it is directly relating to God before Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That is your vertical relationship before you come to Christ. You are dead to God. Doesn't matter who you are. Jew, Gentile, male, female, rich, poor, middle, slave, free, you're dead to God. That's what Paul taught. Now here's a parallel thing. We talk a lot about the vertical, but is there a horizontal? Remember the great commandments are, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and 
Jesus said the second was like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is a vertical and a horizontal that is essential. And so what Paul unpacks here in verses 11-22 through 22 is the horizontal aspect of the Gospel call. If you recognize I'm an individual sinner saved by grace through faith, then I have certain horizontal relationships. And so he says begin by remembering. Remember. That word remember is an important part of the Israelite faith. Over and over and over, the God of Israel says, remember, remember, remember. One of the key passages, of course, comes in Exodus when God told the Israelites, quote, remember this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Once again, God is calling the Gentile church to remember who they were. And for a lot of us, again, we're growing up 2,000 years later. Many of us, maybe most of us in this room, grew up in the church. So in a sense, you don't remember that this was ever the case. This is kind of like not knowing anything about the Berlin Wall. Whether you know about it or not, it actually happened. It's an actual part of history, and it actually matters, and you not knowing about it is not good. Ignorance is not bliss. There was a time when we, Gentiles in the flesh, would have been completely, not only without God in the world, but without a people of God. There would be nobody to come together with. You would have been alone one of the things that makes church so sweet is when you're out in the world, you're, you're at work or whatever, you're at college or whatever it is, and you're surrounded by people who don't share your beliefs. They don't share your values. Maybe they don't just share it. They violate your beliefs and values in front of your face. They say horrible, awful, disgusting, degrading things right in front of you. I remember jobs I, I had in hearing um, what, what, I mean, I had you know, a little bit of a sheltered uh, life earlier on as a kid, and I remember some of my first jobs and hearing my boss's managers using profanity at work, um, men sexually harassing women like out in the open. I mean, this wasn't like way back in the archaic days. This was like you know, 25 years ago, 20 years ago, like openly. And I was just like, you know, like the, the whole thing was shocking to me because I just didn't grow up around that, but I learned very quickly this is par for the course. This is just how it is in the world. And I remember feeling so alienated and so out of place, and I just longed to be back around people who shared my belief in God and, and who shared some Christian values. Have you ever had that experience? Do you have that experience now? Maybe some of you, maybe all of you. Imagine never having fellowship. Not possible. Not just because you're burned out on it or you choose not to do it, but because it's not possible. Imagine church being taken away from you. And you are alone. If you're going to follow God, you can't check with any, any other believer and say, hey, what do you think I should do? What does faithfulness to God look like in this situation? Gosh, I'm lonely. I need support. I'm tempted with this sin. And I'm surrounded by people who are saying, you ought to do it. If you don't do it, something's wrong with you. And I have no one else to tell me otherwise. Nothing. Paul says, remember, that was your situation at one time in the world. You were not a part of any visible community. And that is a tremendous disadvantage. 
Once again, the church is not an add-on or extra credit. It's a part of what it means to be Christian. You're birthed into a social situation. And when you are without the church, when you are without Christian fellowship, you are spiritually disadvantaged. Because one of the interesting things that the New Testament teaches is that God is to be experienced largely and uniquely in the community of believers. That that's actually where He's experienced. The church is the temple. The church is not a building. It's not a place we go to here and it's got a steeple and stained glass. That's not a church. According to the New Testament, according to the New Testament, we are the church. The fellowship of the saints and being in that community being accountable to one another, going through life with one another, sharing our our hopes and our successes as well as our faults and our failures. That's a part of what it means. And this is a tremendous advantage that we have and many times completely take for granted. But at one time was not even possible. And so Paul begins, remember that at one time you would have had no visible community. Now, and keep in mind, If somebody says, well, wait a minute, Pastor Mike, what are you saying? Are you saying that before Christ, all Gentiles went to hell? No, I'm not saying that. I believe that God judges people on the light that they're given. And Paul uses this very thing in Romans chapter 1. He said that what can be known of God is revealed to them in their hearts because they're made in the image of God. They have a conscience. Now, the conscience may be very vague. Not a lot of content. But you know something. You don't know nothing the Bible teaches as a Gentile who's never heard the Bible. You still know something in your heart. And that's what God holds people accountable to. I mean, you'll you'll look at Nineveh, right? You'll look at Jonah and you go, you know, what, what content or knowledge did Nineveh have? Jonah's message gives them virtually nothing to go on, right? He doesn't say anything. He doesn't tell them who God is, for goodness sakes. Worst sermon ever. Doesn't even tell them who God is. Doesn't tell them what their sins were. Doesn't tell them what what it's like to be a community of faith. Doesn't say anything. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. That's his message. 40 days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. And he's hoping it'll happen the whole time. He says it. Really bad sermon, right? Wishing wrath on your congregation. Not good. Not good preaching at all. And yet, they repent from the top to the bottom and God relents the judgment upon them. He shows them forgiveness, mercy, and grace. So no, I don't believe this is saying that just because they were Gentiles and didn't necessarily have the Bible, they went to hell. But he's pointing out that they were strongly disadvantaged. That not having a visible people, even if there were you know, these, these righteous Gentiles that they, they, they knew something of God because they're made in the image of God and the conscience bore witness and they kind of knew this was wrong and they kind of knew this was right. But even so, okay, God will, He judges them on the light they're given, but even so, where do you go with that? What does life daily lived look like when that's all you've got? No Bible. No church, no people. I mean, that is an utterly lost predicament. It's like you're alive but wandering around in a pitch dark room. And that's your spiritual life is just fumbling around in, in the dark. That's the picture of being without the Christian community. Being without 
the church. Not only are we as individuals disadvantaged without the church, I would say society at large is disadvantaged without the presence of the church. Jesus taught this when he said, you, plural, y'all, in Texas, I love the, the, the plural of Texas, y'all, y'all are the salt of the earth. The community of disciples of Jesus are a preserving agent in the world. If you take the church, God's preserving agent of the world, out of the world, what happens to the world? It rots. It decays. So not only we as individuals are we disadvantaged without the Christian community, the world, the world of non-believers, the Bible says, are disadvantaged because you are the very vehicle of God's saving grace in the world. His preserving grace that keeps the world from getting as bad as it could be. So being without the church is a vital thing. He spells out, and this is sort of kind of the opposite of, of all the blessings that Paul talks about in Romans that Israel enjoyed. Because he talks about how in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek. No one has advantage of one over the other in Christ. But he was saying, well, is there no advantage at all, humanly speaking, to being a Jew? And Paul says, much in every way. And he goes on to list a number of things. And he basically lists the opposite of those things here. Look at who the Gentiles were without Christ. He says, first of all, you are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Now, this term for uncircumcision came to be a derogatory term. It's a derogatory racial term for those that are not Jews. And so, it wasn't just a practical designation, though it could have been at one time, probably started out that way. And over time, it came to be a way of putting others down. Anyone who's not like us, we use this racial label on them, and that reminds them of who they are and who we are. And it preserves the hierarchy of racial relations in our worldview. So he says, first of all, remember, you were called this. Fill in the blank. We have all kinds of terms that we know in our culture that we use, people, you, people groups use for one another. And he says, you were called that. Remember that. Then he says, at that time you were without Messiah. You had no Messiah. If you look at the Gentile, Greek, Roman religions, there's no promise of a Messiah. At best, you get these political rulers and you hope they work something like a god, but you know they never are because they do horrible things. You know, they're killing all their family. They are. All the Caesars, look at the lives of the Caesars. Like the good ones, the ones that like only killed like a third of their family, you know, and, and didn't marry their sister or something like that. I mean, honestly, it's like absolutely crazy. So you were, you were without a Messiah. You had no promised one coming to save you from the evil of the world. He says you were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. You did not belong to the visible body and therefore you did not receive any of its benefits. American Express has that famous slogan, membership has its privileges. And that's absolutely true about community life. Membership has its privileges. There is benefits to being a member of a people group. 
And he says, you were without that. All that came from that, the life that comes from that, you were outside of that. And there were many ways that um, the Jewish people at this time would, I don't want to say take advantage. Some would say that. I, I won't make that claim. But for example, there was a rule that Jews were not allowed to charge usury towards other Jews. But if you're not a Jew, I can charge you the highest amount of usury that I want to. What would we call that today? If I loaned money to one people group at no interest, then a person of a different race, I charge them 50%. Whatever you want to call that. Membership certainly had its privileges. You are not a part of our people. You don't get the benefits that go with it. He says they were strangers of the covenants of promise. And it's this idea that over and over in the Old Testament, God promised Himself. He bound Himself to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Moses, to David. But all these promises were for Israel. And so God never made a promise with you. Sure, you can add some weird stumbling in the dark relationship with God. No Bible, no visible people wandering around just hoping all day long that you wouldn't go to hell and what in the world is hell? I'm not even sure. I just know there's something because all religions seem to kind of know there's something going on with judgment after you die. Not sure what. Can't really know. How's that going to work out? Is my heart going to get weighed? Do my good works outweigh my bad? What makes a good work? How do I know? All this stuff, there's no knowing. They were strangers of the covenants of promise. God had not made a promise to them. And then he says, having no hope and without God in the world. Again, without God in the world, like I said, we know even from Paul's own writings in Romans 1, he doesn't mean they couldn't have known God in any way whatsoever. He doesn't mean that everybody went to hell just because they, they didn't know the name Jesus at that time because it hadn't been revealed to them. He says the conscience is enough and responding to that is the basis of God's judgment. But what, when he says without God in the world, the context here is community. And what's amazing about this, so he says without God, but he's talking about not having the people and you get this extremely close, inextricable tie between God Himself and the people of God. It is almost to say that to be in the company of God's people is to experience the presence of God. And that is something the New Testament teaches. Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of you. And, and that's not just one statement. Oh, well, that's talking about you know, judgment, litigation. No, read the entire New Testament. Over and over and over, there's this tie where it's not saying people are God, but you cannot separate the people of God from God. To be with the people of God is to experience God. And in that sense, the sense of knowing that you're experiencing God, the benefit of being with God's people, the Gentiles were completely without. Now already, Paul's hinting here that a change is coming. A change is coming not just between individuals relating to God and, and not going to hell when they die, but in this life, in this world, real social changes are already taking place. He uses this little line. It's, it's one word in Greek, but this little line where he says, made in the flesh by hands. Now, you'd think, Paul, when you brought up the word circumcision, I think we all knew it was made with hands. Right? Like, you didn't just fall off your bike and get circumcised. You know what I mean? It's like, it was made, you know, we realize it was made with hands. Why are you spelling that out? There's a reason. 
Paul's signaling a huge change is coming. When he says made in the flesh by hands, he uses the exact word used in the Hebrew Bible to talk about how idols were made. Idols were made with hands. The point is, whatever's made with a hand can't be God. The Jewish people at this time easily started looking at circumcision not as a sign they were saved by grace through faith, but as a way that they did a work that made them right with God. This is a point Paul argues in both Romans and Galatians. He asked the, his Jewish interlocutors, those that are arguing with him, Paul, I don't know if we can accept this and all this. And he says, well, think about it. You boast in your circumcision. But that's a work you did. Let me ask you, was Abraham the great father of faith? Was he justified after he was circumcised or before? The Hebrew Bible, the Torah says that, and Abraham believed God. And it was counted to him for righteousness. Yes, folks, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, the Hebrew Bible, you have what's commonly called the doctrine of justification by faith. Abraham was not justified by circumcision, but in faith. He was later circumcised as a sign of the faith that had been accredited to him as righteousness. But somewhere in the history, the things that we do after the fact become Vehicles of human pride in which we boast and say why we deserve salvation and others don't. And so he's already hinting at, look, circumcision, he's not saying it was wrong. He believes that it was commanded. But remember, it was made in the flesh by hands, which means it can't be the reason you're justified before God. Point number two. Jesus Christ is tearing down the walls of fear and hatred that separate people because of sin. Remember, physical barriers are not the primary issue. They can be related. They might not have anything to do with it. They can be related. But physical barriers are not the primary issue. It's what they represent and how they are used. Look at verses 13 through 16. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in Himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that He might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity." So again, kind of our key is that he is, quote, verse 14, broken down the middle wall of separation. He's broken that wall down. So what is that and what does it mean? Well, I believe the middle wall of partition was both a physical, actual wall and a ideological wall an emotional wall even, and both needed to be brought down. We know in extra-biblical writings that the Torah was often referred to as a wall or a fence. For example, in the famous letter of Aristias, he said this, writing two centuries before Christ, Jewish writer, talking about the purpose of the Torah, quote, in his wisdom, the legislator, 
surrounded us, that's the Jewish people, with unbroken and iron, what? Walls. To prevent, why? Our mixing with any of the other peoples in any matter. Being thus kept pure in body and soul. Preserved from false beliefs and worshiping the only God omnipotent over all creation. So to prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences, He hedged us in on all sides with strict observances connected with meat and drink and touch and hearing and sight after the manner of the law or Torah." End quote. So one of the things Paul is doing is he's explaining why the Mosaic Law can no longer apply. For some reason, this is still a matter of confusion for many Christians. I've even seen various Christians saying, we need to get back to obeying the Mosaic Law and keeping all the laws. And it's like, wait a minute, you don't understand what the New Testament teaches about it, and you probably don't understand why it teaches that about that. It's not that the laws were bad. If God gave them, they were good. But they served a purpose for a time. What happens if that time and purpose are over and yet you continue? There was a purpose for those things. Now, was that purpose the purpose that we just read in this letter? I don't think that's what God intended when He gave these things. What God is doing in the Old Testament with all the dietary laws, it's true. He is creating distinction. He is. I mean, there's no doubt about it. When He's saying, here's the court of the Gentiles, here's the court of Israelites, here's the court of women, here's here's the, the court of the priests, and here's the Holy of Holies, only a high priest can go into only once a year. He is making social distinctions. And we know how temples functioned in the ancient world, both in Israel and in any other ancient Near Eastern culture. The way a temple was ordered, where certain people could be here, certain here, and certain here, was meant and understood to model what the rest of your life looks like. We know this more recently um, with the caste system in India, which is technically illegal, but still practiced culturally in many places. In the caste system, you have certain people from certain castes, and they are stuck there the rest of their lives. A Brahmin and a Dalit cannot change places. They are stuck there. The religion teaches some people are born better than others, and that's the way it's always going to be. Most people in the ancient world would have totally understood that. Now, when God made these distinctions, what is God doing? Because on the surface, you might go, wow, uh, the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, that's like biased and racist and sexist and what's going on? And many people are saying this. What the Bible would teach is, first of all, God did not create division in the world. Sin did. God didn't make the world then before the fall give the Torah. He gave it after. Paul even says this, that the law was given because of sin. That's his argument. It it wasn't given first, keep keep 613 rules, then the world will be right. No, he gave one. Can you all keep one rule? Can can you do that? Keep one rule. Don't, Don't eat the fruit on that tree. That's it. One rule. God gave one rule. It's just trust me. That's the essential rule. Love me, trust me, that's it. Humanity, Adam, our representatives, Adam, Eve, could not even do that. Because at the end of the day, we want to trust ourselves. Our emotions, our instincts, the lust of our eyes, we, that's what we want to trust. 
So it's only after sin. There's already division. When man sinned against God, they died spiritually. And then what happened with Adam and Eve? You have the first marriage problems. They're accusing one another. Marriage problems come from that. And then you have sibling rivalry. You have Cain and Abel. Then you have murder. The first human murder. So you have all this sin. Finally, after all this sin, division being caused because of what we've done and because of what others have done, God says, here's the law. I'm slowing this whole thing down. The Torah didn't fix the problem, but it was meant to slow it down. The Torah says, look, there are, you make distinctions in the world already. You make distinctions between men and women, between people of this class and that class and this group and that. You do that anyway. So what God's going to do is He's going to set it up and He's going to tell you how to rightly relate to each one. Love God, love your neighbor. The problem is not so much the difference or the distinction, it's the sin and enmity in the heart. Because you, if you have these different courts, but everyone loves their neighbor as themselves, it's like, who cares? These walls are almost meaningless. Because we, we love each other and treat each other as one when we get out. But the problem was the human heart. And so the Torah never dealt with that. It was given for a time. So what Paul is saying is that the Torah did its job, but that job is done. Because God is doing a new thing. So what I hope I've shown is that in the heart, the way that Jewish believers were looking at the Torah was a way of staying away from others, putting up walls, building walls so they would not be contaminated. Now, this is in the heart. This is belief, right? Now, secondly, there was a physical wall. It's known here as the wall of hostility. We know from archaeology this was a real physical wall. We've actually found a plaque written in Greek. There it is up behind me. From the time of Paul and even preceding. And this is what it says. This is on the court of the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are only allowed to a certain degree and then they could not go further. Then you had the court of the women. Then you had the court of the Israelite men. Then you had the court of the priests. And then the Holy of Holies, one high priest, once a year. So at the wall separating the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple complex, you had this sign which reads this. No foreigner is to go beyond the balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death which will follow. Does that sound like a wall? both of the physical variety and of the heart. Now, maybe you say to yourself, well, that's, you know, that's like, you know, they, they sell little signs with like, you know, little guns on them to warrant, you know, you got your beware of dog sign and maybe you don't even have a dog. You know, it's got like a Doberman on it, but you have a cat and you just put it up because you don't want burglars to rob you and, oh, maybe you have a sign with a gun and you, you're just, you don't really, but you just want to scare people away. Maybe that's what they're doing. Maybe this is just a veiled threat. Let me quote the book of Acts to you. How serious were the Jews about that sign? Acts 21, 26-32. Listen to this story. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on them, crying out, 
Men of Israel, help! This is a call to the Jewish people. This is the man, Paul, who I'm teaching you from today. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people. That's against the Jewish people. And Paul's a Jew. Against the Jewish people, against the Torah, law of Moses, and this place, the temple. And furthermore, as if all that wasn't bad enough, he also brought Greeks, non-Jews, into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. Now as they were seeking to kill him, news came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. How serious were these walls? How serious was that sign? When Paul uses the word enmity, and I don't use that word very often, except when I'm reading from this translation of the Bible, but let me remind you, the word enmity means hatred. You see a hatred, a fierce hatred here. And physical barriers can represent that. But what you see is the problem ultimately is in the heart. There's hatred there. And so Paul calls that wall with that sign the wall of hatred. It's a wall that represents hatred. That is the problem. And so what he is teaching us here in this portion of Scripture is that if you're in Jesus... You've accepted Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. For by grace you've been saved through faith. You as an individual are a sinner and I want to be right with God. He's teaching if that's true, as a result, you will become the kind of person empowered by the Spirit who tears down walls of hatred. That's not a side thing. That's who we are. We are people that go out and tear down walls of hatred in the world because we believe the wall separating us between man and God, the veil in the temple that was torn from top to bottom has already been torn. The enmity in the world between humanity and God has been satisfied in Jesus Christ. And the way of showing that in the world is to see these walls of hatred torn down. And it's important to see that, yes, there was a physical wall there between the court of the Gentiles and the rest of the commons. Yes, physical barrier. The real problem, though, what we see is the heart. That there is a real hatred towards other people that is incompatible with the love of God shed abroad in the hearts of those who trust in Jesus for salvation. And that if we really receive that, this is real-world effects. I mean, you think about the audacity of Paul. He's being called a traitor to his people. And this was a common theme throughout his Christian ministry. Paul is called a traitor to his people group. A traitor to his race. Paul's at the Jewish temple in that scene in Acts with someone from the Ephesian church. A Gentile. 
who was without God in the world, had no visible people. And Paul says, I'm a Jew, have all the advantages of being a Jew, and I'm going to set those aside to be one with you and to dare to go in with you as a sign to the temple. Because Paul's not stupid. If he were worried about what everyone else was going to say or do, he would have been like, hey, Trophimus, um, listen, I love hanging out with you. Uh, we can grab a bite to eat later, but when I go to the temple, could you just like hang out at the pub or something? Like watch, watch the World Cup, you know? Like I, I don't want them to see me with you. Because to be seen with you could cost me. Paul knows what he's doing. And he brings a, a Greek to the temple. And, and it says he, it, I, I don't think he actually brought him in for, for the record into the, the Jewish area, but even the fact he was, this shows the hate. Even if Paul didn't actually bring him past those walls, they hated him anyway. The wall and barrier became an excuse to enact a hatred that was already there, whether he happened to go past those walls or not. This idea of walls of hatred coming down, what we might also call reconciliation, is something that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. Paul goes so far as to say God has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That's the word he uses. That's what you've been given. You want to know what your ministry is? Stop wandering around and doing nothing. Stop wondering, oh, well, I'm just going to do this side thing. Oh, I kind of like this, and I'll do... Like, your ministry is reconciliation. Our ministry is reconciliation. Our ministry is to bring down the walls of hate first in our own hearts, and second in the world. And to do that wherever we find it. That is the call of the Gospel. And it has real-world, tangible effects. Lastly, point number three. In Christ, we have a new human identity which enables and commissions us to be agents of reconciliation in the world. Look at verses 17 through 22. And he came and preached peace to you who were afar off. That is the Gentiles. You were literally far off. You were not allowed near. And to those who were near, also to the Jews. For through Him, that is Christ, we both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So Paul is taking all the temple language of the Old Testament and he's saying God is doing a new temple. And it's not one made by hands. It's one that God makes through the Gospel. And the stones are not inanimate objects. They are you. Human beings that he fits together. And when we think about it, I know Martin Luther King once said this back in the 60s. I wonder what he would say today. But he was giving a sermon at the National Cathedral in D.C. It was 10 o'clock. And he said, I am preaching to you at the most segregated hour of the week. 
What he was saying is that it, as much as churches and people are saying, oh, we believe we're one and all this, that in churches many times most people choose to only go to churches where they feel they fit in. But the call of reconciliation is to go and make others feel like they belong. To bring them in, to bring them to Christ as the foundation, to be reconcilers. There's nothing obviously supernatural about being a part of a church where everyone is exactly like you. And I can be honest, just as a Christian and most people I know, that's what they look for. Oh, well, I'm, I'm this age. I, I want to go to a church where people are my age. Not even saying that's wrong, but that's not, high, that's not supernatural at all, is it? If you're all, you know, one color or this or that, and you go, I only want to be around my group. How supernatural is that? That's just what people do. Even the kind, and again, I'm not saying that's wrong, but that's just the kind of thing even someone dead in their trespasses and sins can do. What Christians are called to do is to bring down those walls of hatred and to be reconcilers, particularly with people whom otherwise you would not have anything to do. One of the most beautiful things in the world is, is when you see people of opposite groups. I mean, how many churches do you actually have Republicans and Democrats go to together? How many? Probably not many. You, in, my, in my understanding, my experience, it's usually one or the other. This is all conservative, this is all liberal, and that's kind of how it is. You know, people are all this age or all that age. It's all this group, it's all that group, it's all poor, it's all wealth, whatever. That's just normally how it is. But what we're being called to do is people that are bringing everyone in to the presence of God on equal footing. I want to point out the word translated as temple here in, in verse 21 is, is interesting. It's not the normal word for temple. It's the word naas or naan, and it's the word used for the innermost sanctuary. So what he's saying is in the old temple, no one was allowed into the naas, naan, except one high priest once a year. That's the only person who was allowed in that part of the temple. And then everyone else was separated out. He's saying what God is doing in Christ, everyone, regardless of who they are, is all allowed into the holy of holies. The presence of God. Because the veil in the temple, the true veil, which was Christ's flesh, has been torn. And we all have access. So what Paul is saying, this is not just, oh, you know, you know, Gentiles are becoming Jews or anything like that, or let's just try to make the old thing better. No, behold, this is new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 in the Greek, that's actually what it says. It doesn't say um, anyone is a new creation. It just says, behold, new creation. If anyone's in Christ, behold, new creation. If anyone's in Christ, you're actually witnessing that's what's happening. God's new thing is taking place. And in this new temple, it's us. And we're not in any outer court or anything else. We're not separated from anyone. We are all in the holy of holies, able to go right into God's very presence because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And we are being fitted together. The foundation, Jesus Himself, His work, He's the cornerstone. The weight load-bearing stone that enables the whole thing to stand. When I think of personality types, which has political implications, there's ethical moral ones, but sometimes that's all we think about. There's personality types. 
conservative personality types tend to want to keep the walls up. That's where they're comfortable, is keeping the walls up. Liberal types might want to tear all the walls down. But what's interesting is without Christ, you're not able, if you're a conservative type person, you're not able to let the walls go down. If you're a liberal type, you have no unifying basis through which to tear the walls down. It became popular in in the 20th century in Europe as the world was becoming global to update Christianity to fit the modern world. We call it theological liberalism. Essentially, it took Christianity and says, look, we've got to change it to fit science. We've got to change it to, to fit these different things. And so some of the stuff in the Bible just doesn't fit the modern world. We'll get rid of that. Deity of Christ, that gets in the way and all that. So one guy, for example, famous German theologian called Adolf von Harnack, he proposed that what we can take from the Bible that's good for everyone is the universal brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. Look, we're all God's children equally, and let's just get together. Now, there's a partial truth to that. But what Van Harnack left out was Christ. What he was saying is, look, we can just chant equality and have no real unifying basis through which to do so. Leaving people dead in their trespasses and sins. Conservatives might want to be like, oh, I want individual salvation with me facing God, but I don't really want to live out the implications of that because it's costly. I think what the gospel is calling to do is not going to be comfortable for anybody. To be honest, if the gospel's preached where one group, let's say political, is 100% comfortable, I think you're in the wrong place listening to bad preaching. Honestly, that's clearly preaching that's been co-opted by the culture, bottom line. And I think people always want to hear what they want to hear. That's just the way it is. People go where they'll, they'll hear what they already want to believe. For me personally, I do my best not to do that. But to teach God's Word. And if it's like, if this offends this person, I mean, I, I don't want to offend you, but if it does, I'm sorry. I have no choice. If it offends you over here, and, oh, and you're worried about, oh, well, this can be used to do this, and I don't, well, I'm sorry. I have to teach what God says. And ultimately what Jesus does is He deals with the root of the problem, which is a problem of the heart. That we have kept up walls of hostility in our hearts. Walls of hatred towards other individuals and towards other groups. So Paul concludes this section by tying together the good news of how individual sinners are saved and reconciled to God in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And then here this morning in verses 11 through 22, how since that is true, it means a whole new human identity which breaks down all the internal walls of hatred towards others and offers forth Jesus as a means of reconciling all peoples. As we know in 1989, that dark symbol of the long, cold war, the Berlin Wall, was finally torn down. It was a cause for rejoicing. People were standing on top of the wall and dancing and screaming and shouting for joy. Not just because a physical barrier went down, 
but because that physical barrier was also symbolic of hostility and hatred that people can have towards one another. What I want to ask this morning is what walls is God calling you to tear down? What hatred, bitterness, or resentment might you have in your heart? The possible applications are endless. When I turn on the news, I hear so much hatred of Democrats and Republicans for each other. Not just disagreement, mind you. Hatred. Wishing the death of others. I've seen politicians die and have representatives from both sides talk about how glad they are that they're dead. For me as a human being and as a Christian, I just don't wish that even on my enemies. I don't wish that they die. Even more, I wish that if they die, they do not go to hell. Because anything less than that is a heart that is demonstrably alienated from the heart of God. Even in the Old Testament where people feel like, oh, you see, a God of wrath and war and all that, and God says, quote, I do not delight in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked might turn from his way. God is slow to anger, abundant in mercy. He doesn't want anyone to perish. That's who God is. So in the political world, we have so much hatred for people. No wonder we can't get agreements done. You know how that is. You got hatred in your family. You're arguing about where you're going to spend Christmas. That doesn't seem like it should be too hard. But when you hate each other, how hard does that get? It's like East and West Berlin, practically. This hatred, you might think, well, in this context, it's of racial groups, ethnic groups, and it certainly can be. Let me keep it closer to home. Hatred can start building up in marriages. One of the most sad and depressing things I've seen in the 15 years I've been pastoring is professing Christian couples, husbands and wives, slowly but surely grow in their hatred for one another. Professing Christian people who would tell you, looking straight in the eye, I've been saved by grace through faith. It's a, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And I hate my spouse's guts. And I won't stick it out any longer. Irreconcilable difference. This could be your extended family. It could be parents. It could be brothers and sisters. There's, there's a wall in here. Whether there's one of these or not. Is God calling you to tear those walls down today? Maybe there's people in your work that you can't stand. You've got these walls of hatred. Maybe you're not doing things outwardly to them that maybe they could necessarily pin it on, but you sure have a wall in your heart that makes sure they don't know that you love them because you don't. To take the more immediate and obvious application of this passage, maybe there's people groups ethnic groups, racial groups, you have hatred, hostility in your heart towards. God's calling you to tear those walls down. Now, humanly speaking, I understand some of this can go back decades, generations for people. 
Some people grow up in this world actually inheriting stories from generations past about why you should hate another group of people. And that story is actually passed on to this day. If so, if that seems humanly impossible, I'm not here to tell you that it's, that it's not. And you can just try real hard. It might be impossible for you to get over your hatred. But with God, all things are possible. The gospel breaks down the walls no human hand can break. I know that this is relevant to all of us. I know that it's relevant to our world. We need the truth of this so bad. Our society is trying to fight for it in different ways. But many times without the benefit of the gospel that changes human hearts, that gives us a new common identity that isn't built on the things everyone's fighting over because it's not built by human hands. It's a new identity in Christ given by God as a work of His Spirit by grace through faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just come before You this morning and first of all, we thank You that the barrier separating us from You, sin, has been broken on the cross. That the cross is proof that we can be reconciled to God this morning. That no matter what we've done, what others have done, no matter how hard change seems maybe impossible, the cross is living proof that God can raise the dead. It is living proof of Your love for us. And this text that we've studied this morning is proof that if we claim that, if we want to be reconciled, we don't want to be under, under Your wrath. We don't want to go to hell when we die. We don't want to suffer from the guilt from our sins. Okay, well, then we know to run to Jesus, but do we understand that if we run to Jesus, we now belong to Jesus? And if we belong to Jesus, we are called to do Jesus' work in Jesus' world. And this means the walls of hostility, both physical and of the heart, must come down this morning. I pray for Your Spirit to fall on us. I pray to all those right now whose hearts are already saying yes and amen. Lord, would You meet them where they are? Would you just take that hammer and start breaking down those walls? And let there be celebration. It is not a sad day when these walls go down. Like the wall of Berlin, it is a day of rejoicing. Free at last. Free at last. Lord, we just pray that we would go out into the world and we would testify to that hatred in our hearts that's been broken down and that we would show this to the world. That we would be a church for others. That we would purposely, like Paul, seek those who are on the outside in order to bring them in. Yes, even at cost to ourselves. We pray You would do this not just for us, Lord, but as a sign of Your love. That You would draw all nations to You 
so that when they see what is going on in the world tangibly, in the lives of those who believe, they say to themselves, there is a God in heaven. And Jesus is His Son. And that is the good news I want to believe. I pray You do this work in our hearts now, even as we respond to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.